Good morning. So we're going through our series, What is Church? By looking at how certain parts of the New Testament describe the church and its people, we want to try and understand who we are and what we should be doing. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of 1 Peter, which I have the privilege of concluding today before we move on to Ephesians. So just now we had verses 13 through 17 of 1 Peter 2, read to us from the New International Version. The whole passage will be helpful for our study this morning, but to start us off, I'm going to dive straight into the main verse for today. According to verse 16, a church is a body of people that should live as God's slaves. Now, on first read, that phrase makes us a bit uncomfortable, right? Surely being a slave is not a good thing. The word slavery conjures up images of people in chains being forced into backbreaking labour and being beaten with whips. Even in the Old Testament, that's exactly what slavery was to the Israelites under the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. Or in the New Testament, we might think of John chapter 8 or Romans 6 and 7, which refer to the idea of being a slave to sin. We wouldn't want to be a slave to an Egyptian pharaoh or a slave to sin. So why is this negative word applied to our relationship with our loving Father God? Well, the title I've been given today isn't actually slaves of God, but servants of God, which is how verse 16 is translated in the English Standard Version and King James Version of our Bibles, and even some older versions of the NIV. Now, That sounds a bit nicer, right? Being a servant rather than being a slave. A slave is forced to work for free, while a servant chooses to work for wages. So what's going on here? Did some of our Bible translations just whitewash this uncomfortable word slave because it sounds less offensive than servant? Well, whenever there's confusion about a New Testament word, the best thing to do is to have a look for ourselves at the original Greek. The word used here is doulos. Here's what an online Bible dictionary has to say about it. Doulos, someone who belongs to another, a bond slave without any ownership rights of their own. Ironically, doulos is used with the highest dignity in the New Testament of believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers. Okay, so that's quite different from the traditional idea of a slave, right? In fact, Peter and John use this word of themselves in Acts chapter 4. After their release from jail for proclaiming Jesus' resurrection, they pray to God, enable your doulos, bond slaves, to speak your word with greatest boldness. I mentioned the phrase slave to sin in Romans 6 and 7. Well, also in Romans, Paul refers to himself as a doulos of Christ Jesus. Peter does the same thing at the start of his second letter. Finally, in Philippians 2, Jesus himself is referred to as taking the very nature of a doulos, being made in human likeness. Now, I think that clinches it. If Jesus himself took on the nature of a doulos, bond slave, then this is clearly not a negative thing. So, no, the ESV and other translations aren't trying to deceive us by using some safe, watered-down word. These different translations 
just evoke slightly different ideas of the same thing. Being slaves of Christ in the sense that we work hard for his heavenly kingdom without expecting earthly reward, but servants of Christ in the sense of a high servant who is pretty much a member of their master's family, who can even expect a share in their estate, that is, an inheritance in God's heavenly kingdom. That's what Peter means by being a slave of God. So let's now take a step back and go through the whole passage to help us understand this idea a bit more. What does being God's bond slave slash servant look like practically? I reckon there are three main things that this passage reveals to us that are practical ways to live as God's servants. And at this point, I'll repeat my usual encouragement to follow along with me in your own Bible so you can see these truths for yourself as we go through. So it's 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority or every human authority. Hmm. Now, not even a sentence in and we're already at another uncomfortable bit. Apparently, as bond servants, we're not only supposed to submit to God, but to every human authority. And it gets more shocking because in verse 14, Peter refers to at least some of these authorities as sent by God. So we know this is all part of the bond servants of God deal because God, our master, sent these authorities himself. What? <laughs> so does that mean that the government, police officers, our bosses at work, our teachers, our parents and carers, we're supposed to do whatever they say completely blindly, no matter how ridiculous or just plain wrong their instructions sound to us? Because, in fact, the context here is that when Peter wrote his letter, the Roman Empire was overseen by a tyrannical ruler, a man named Nero. This guy would later divert suspicion from himself for starting the Great Fire of Rome by capturing Christians and burning them alive. Is Peter really saying about every authority, even a guy like that? Well, sort of. Peter says something, sorry, Paul says something similar in Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. He even qualifies it in the same way as Peter, for there is no, no authority except that which God has established. But the book of Acts gives us another angle on this. In chapter 5, Peter is among the apostles arrested for teaching in Jesus' name. When accused by the high priest, they reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. So, what do we make of these different passages? Submit to every human authority unless it means disobeying God. So that's a bit less extreme. At least we know that if an authority figure tells us to do something that conflicts with God's instructions, we should say no. But that's still a tall order, because often our natural inclination is to rebel. Seeking to obey a perfect God is one thing, because surely he knows best. But to obey flawed, imperfect human authorities, to obey our government 
even when they break their own COVID guidelines, to obey our bosses at work, even when they make decisions that we disagree with. Even if we can do this with discernment and say no when God's word overrules, this is still incredibly difficult. So why does Peter urge this? Why is this part of being God's servants? Well, that's where the next verse comes in. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Now, the context here is that the church was undergoing immense persecution. We know from elsewhere in this letter that the recipients' Roman neighbours heaped abuse on them and spoke maliciously against them. After all, while we might, we might bulk at the idea of submitting to earthly authority, in the ancient Roman world, the idea of people answering to anyone above the emperor was considered treasonous. Society would have thought that these Christians were conspiring to overthrow Rome. So Peter's answer to this? Submit to the governing authorities and so prove them wrong. Show them that you're above their accusations. So how does this relate to us? Because we might distrust the government sometimes or other authority figures, but thankfully our faith isn't generally seen as treasonous against them. But there are still plenty of negative feelings towards Christians today. I read this study commissioned a few years ago by several church groups in England that asked non-Christian adults how they would describe Christians they knew. The answers included narrow-minded, hypocritical, uptight and homophobic. Now, granted, that was only a survey of a small sample size. But the reality is, that's the impression that at least some Christians in this country give to some non-Christians. The unfortunate truth is, when we interact with the world, these are some of the labels we're fighting against. But the way to fight it, Peter says, is to be obedient to our earthly authorities. If we obey them, insofar as it means being obedient to God, we will fight these negative ideas and show them to be wrong. Going out of our way to listen and understand what others believe, to follow Jesus' teachings and be honest in our failures, to be open with others and loving them no matter who they are. In other words, as the passage says, by doing good. By doing good, by being good servants, we cannot rightly be accused of doing anything else. And there is hope in this, by the way. In that same study, in spite of those negative words, far more people responded with positive words about Christians. Words like friendly, caring, good-humoured, and generous. The Christians of those words are 2 Peter chapter 2, Christians. So let's build on the positive reputation of those words and be servants of God in our friendliness, in our caring nature, in our good humour and our generosity. Okay, so what does it mean to be a servant of God? Point one 
it means submitting to the authorities he has placed in the world so that we may silence the critics. So what's next? Well, let's go back to verse 16, our main verse, because we haven't read all of it just yet. Before we get to the God slaves bit, it says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Now, that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? We've got live as free people next to live as God's slaves or servants. Isn't that a contradiction? What's that about? Well, I think Peter is deliberately using this seemingly contradictory word, these seemingly contradictory words, to make a point. Being God's slave actually means freedom. It means freedom in both senses of the word, freedom from and freedom to. We have freedom from the consequences of sin. Jesus has paid that price by his death on the cross. We also have freedom to live a life of exuberant service, for example, by doing good in the ways we covered earlier. So Peter urges us to exercise this latter freedom in Christ, the freedom afforded to God's servants. But, he says, do not use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. What does that mean? Well, like I said, God's servants have freedom from the consequences of sin. But just because we won't be punished for our sins, that doesn't mean we should use that as an excuse to keep on sinning. Paul puts it nicely in Galatians chapter 5. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Don't abuse your freedom by sinning more, but recognise Jesus' loving sacrifice by paying it forward and loving your neighbour. Being servants of God means we're free from sin's consequences and free to serve God and his people with love. Okay, so where are we up to? Being God's servants means... One, obeying the authorities he's placed before us, and two, not abusing our freedom by sinning, but using it to love others. Finally, let's look at verse 17. Right after the instruction to live as God's servants, it says, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Now, most of that sounds pretty reasonable. Love other believers, respect everyone, fear God. And that's not fear as in a phobia, by the way, but fear is in the sense of being awed by God or revering him. We might sum all that up by saying, give others their due. Then we get to the honour the emperor bit, which, like verse 13, we could apply to the various authorities over us today. To honour means to give respect or merit to something. It's actually the same Greek word used for respect in the earlier line, show proper respect to everyone. And if we concede that we're supposed to obey such authority, then it makes sense we should honour it too. Because even if we don't always agree with authority, we should respect the position of that authority to make decisions. So how does all this relate to our theme, being God's servants? Well, as God's servants, how we relate to others should be a reflection of how we relate to God. Our reverence for God should be what drives our servant hearts. 
After all, he is the divine creator, the originator and perfecter of the universe, who sent his son Jesus to die so that his followers may receive eternal life. But what should also be born out of that reverence is the respect we give to others, much like the respect we should give to our creator God. That reverence should be reflected in how we love each other in the church. We should look out for each other and care for one another in the same way God does for us. And finally, and perhaps most difficult, we should honour authority because the God we revere put that authority over us. So, there we have it. Being a church means living as God's servants. And being a faithful servant means submitting to authority, to silence the critics, not covering up evil, but serving others with love, and giving others their due, driven by our reverence for God. So what then? What happens with good and faithful servants? Well, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable in which a servant pleases his master. And this is what the master says. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. So, church, let us be good and faithful servants to the Lord God, our master. And one day we will get to share in our master's happiness. Amen.